0: one of the things i've been trying to think about is how do we talk to our children about the fact that being a christian makes us different in this culture
1: welcome to christ and culture the podcast of the l russ bush center for faith and culture at southeastern baptist theological seminary here we'll explore how the christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to The
2: Conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Today marks our season finale of the Christ and Culture podcast, and we're ending with a bang with part two of our conversation with Rachel Gilson. Last week in part one, she told us about her remarkable conversion and God's grace in her life. And this week, we pivot a little bit, and she talks about her perspective on gender, sexuality, and the transgender movement as a whole. But first, let's begin with our new segment called Together We Go. In this segment, we want to highlight students, alumni, and friends of Southeastern Seminary who work in everyday vocations. and We want to share how they're using their work to fulfill the Great Commission. Today's guest on Together We Go is Nancy Brito.
3: Vocationally, I serve as the CFC's grant administrator. So that basically means that I help write and run and report on all things grants for the center. And then academically, I'm also finishing my master's degree in Christian counseling. So I see clients just about every day in a clinic. And personally, I'm very involved in my church and with evangelism and discipleship efforts in our neighborhood. You know, I think about the way that the Center for Faith and Culture equips me to do these things in a couple of ways. First, I'll note that I have a great privilege of sitting sort of in the inside circle at the center. And so I can be actively engaged in a lot of the work that we're doing, which overflows into these kind of two ways I see the center impacting me. And one is um, in a very practical sense, um, a lot of the different discussions and topics that the center explores is very relevant to my neighbors, my friends, my family members, people I counsel and provide therapy for. And so particularly with our grant right now, on theological anthropology, I'm learning a lot about how we define and understand humans and what flourishing looks like and means. And um, one of my professors here, Dr. Kellen, frequently will say your theory will drive your practice. And so I find that the theory I'm developing here at the center is honestly even driving some of my practice with my clients. Another way I see the CFC impacting me personally is that it's forming and molding me significantly to be thoughtful and to think deeply and carefully and to speak winsomely and with charity in different tough conversations. And that's something I admire so deeply from our leadership in paving the way. I would greatly appreciate your prayers for wisdom and grace and faithfulness in these different areas where the Lord has placed me. I'm Nancy Brito, and together we go.
2: Nancy Brito serves as the grant administrator here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, and she is one of those people who works behind the scenes to make all of the work at the center possible. So thank you, Nancy, for your work here at the Center for Faith and Culture.
1: What do the scriptures and sciences tell us about the value of human life? If you are attending this year's Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California, please do plan to join us for Valuing Life, Insights from the Bible and Science. This is a special Center for Faith and Culture event at the Southern Baptist Convention. We will explore issues about human personhood from a biblical, scientific, legal, and personal angles. Speakers include Elizabeth Graham from the ERLC, Denise Harl from the Alliance for Defending Freedom, Aaron Smith, a developmental psychologist from California Baptist University, and others as well. The event is completely free, so if you plan to attend the SBC annual meeting, join us Tuesday evening, June the 14th at 7.30 p.m. You can learn more about this at cfc.scbts.edu or click the link in our show notes. See you there. All right. I, we're we are here to talk about transgenderism. Let's turn that direction. Um, tell me about this. So you mentioned a minute ago, you, you talked about the LGBTQ and, and on it goes, the acronym, uh, the uh-huh. T, trans, transgender piece. Uh, the Q is a part of this as well. You said, you know, the T and the Q weren't really part of your experience. But you you talk with people about this often. You educate people, you resource people, you you counsel people through these kinds of things. First of all, how do you see sort of the state of the conversation about transgenderism uh, today? And I know it's, it's moving every day. This is. This is yeah, it really is. But how do you see it right this second?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's so many different, um, so many different angles you could approach it from, too. So just to clarify, T in the LGBT typically stands for transgender. Q stands for queer, which is actually used by almost anybody. Some people don't even like the limitation of like gay or lesbian. So they just say I'm queer. But then transgender people can use queer, too, as a type of umbrella term, basically sort of saying, I'm not normal. And that can be strange for certain generations of Americans, because previously queer was used only as a derogatory term. But it's been basically been reclaimed by the LGBT community. So that's just a helpful sort of thing. So even like the conversation, right, I'm accustomed to running in different circles. and, And even in conservative circles, we can often hear like the phrase transgenderism. And I think behind that is usually trying to get to the idea that there's a type of ideology behind transgender identities. But even that can be a kind of uh, fighting word, right? Because certain people who might be allies to that community or part of that community would hear that term. And it just sounds sort of aggressive or medical or (laughs) compounding sort of different types of pains. And so even at the language of basic conversation, it's really easy for all kinds of parties in the conversation to feel defensive or to talk past one another. So it's, it's very complicated that we didn't really as a society start broadly talking about transgender identities before Caitlyn Jenner, let's say in 2015 on the Vogue uh, cover Jenner, who had been such a picture of masculinity in the eighties and Christian's say just evangelical Christians, we were a little late to the conversation. Oliver O'Donovan in 1983 published an article on transsexualism and Christian marriage that honestly, if you just dusted off the language and published it now, it would still hold up. But nobody did anything for decades until you had Mark Yarhouse publish Understanding Gender Dysphoria in 2015. We've had basically a steady drip of evangelical books trying to understand the Bible Uh, and transgender identities since 2015. So we're starting to have more conversations. Really what we need is more PhD students digging down into theological anthropology. So I would plead for our best minds to start doing great work Mm -hmm. in that field. So the conversation is the language is changing all the time, as in the actual terms are changing all the time. Uh, The political landscape is changing all the time. And the, the church hasn't had to ask these questions of our text before. Now, the church has felt confident that God created humanity as male and female and called it very good. Uh, Confident, one, because we see it all around us, and two, because it's very clear in the text. And there have always been people throughout the history of the world who have lived in gender nonconforming ways. So it's not like transgender people started to exist in 2015. However, the movement to place a type of validity on transgender identities, the way that we see it politically and socially moving, that has never happened before. And some of the best theological work that the church does is in response to error. Like when errors come up in the places that the church exists, that causes us to go back to our texts and to say, what does God's word really say? So some, I think some of us are feeling Anxious that we don't have like lots of ready made worksheets to go lead like Bible studies on transgender identities on Uh, because we know that God's word speaks to every aspect of what we need for holiness, for holy living and faithful evangelism and doing justice and all those things. The difficulty, of course, is just because we haven't had enough time yet to really thoughtfully engage our texts where we don't have the same type of materials to pass on down to the pew. So that's part of our state. We're we're still in the early stages of creating good theological biblical resources for the church to use. And in the meantime, we're just out here living, trying trying to be good neighbors, good disciples. And many of us now know more and more people who are identifying as transgender in one way or another. So we feel the tension.
1: So help me think through then, and you're so right that the church, first of all, does its best work in the context of a, a theological or cultural controversy. doesn't mean that it has to be a, a bloody fight, per se, but sure, it's sure. pressed upon with these kind of ways that we really go back to the text, we go back to our authorities, we go back to our sources, into our history, and we excavate that to really see what does it look like to love God and neighbor in this moment, in this issue. But at the same time, in, in the immediate instance, in the immediate moment, sometimes it's hard to know what's what's biblical, what's cultural. Oh gosh, I area, know. But where are the places where we can say we can draw bold and hard and fast lines here? Um, because yeah. so clear versus as you said, the, the conversation's moving so fast, we haven't had time to evaluate all these things well. What are some things that maybe we just need to we need to be quiet about that one or listen a little longer? <laughs> so really the question is where's the biblical categories, where are the cultural categories? How do we discern these things?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. We can feel absolutely sure that god created humanity male and female and that it's very good i I, and i think we can we can rest there we see it in genesis 1 and i also think we can rest there because when we see the resurrection of the lord when he appears in his resurrection form he's not like an androgynous human they they recognize him as male just as he was in his in his you know, embodied state after the incarnation. We know that we're promised to participate in a resurrection like his. And we know our bodies are going to be different, spiritual in a different type of way than they are now. I think we have reason to believe that our embodiment as male and female will exist in the new heavens and the new earth as well. But there's something powerful and beautiful happening in God creating us this way. Um, and so that's, I think, why we see in a text like 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, which is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament, full stop, right? There's a lot of things going on in the so-called head coverings passage that are just extremely complicated. But one of the things we can rest on is that Paul did want males and females to look distinct within the gathered church community, that there was something creational and evangelical and cultural about men looking like men and women looking like women, not because they were repressed, but because that was how they were going to bring honor to each other as men and women and how they were going to honor the Lord and how he created us. Yeah. I think we have a lot of good reason as the church to say male and female is good. And that when someone is committed to following Christ, ultimately what that looks like is embracing the biological sex that we were given with. However, we also know discipleship, I mean, gosh, in in the scriptures, discipleship is compared to like a tree growing. It takes a long time for a tree to grow big and strong to withstand sort of anything. It's described as like walking, which is a particularly slow way to get somewhere. And it's always grace and truth over time. So as Christians, we're comfortable with the fact that the fall touched Everything, and introduced brokenness and sin into every every piece of God's good creation. And so, one of the ways that manifests that impacts the transgender conversation is that there are some people who have the experience known as gender dysphoria, and this is an experience. Uh, well, it's not just one monolithic experience, but generally, it's it's a type of alienation from your biological sex where you do not feel like you know, if you were born male, that you actually are a man. Now, so for some people, this can be like a mild experience. Like just a, imagine like a little buzzing in the background. I've heard it described or just sort of always there. For some people, it goes up and down, maybe sometimes based on the circumstances they're involved in. So in their day-to-day life, it might not be too strong, but in certain circumstances, maybe highly gendered circumstances, they sort of feel it. For other people, the experience of gender dysphoria can be excruciating and, and lead to suicidal thoughts, like just this immense alienation from yourself. Can you imagine feeling cut off from your very self? This is why the transgender conversation is different than the conversation around same-sex attraction. I'm a female who experiences sexual attraction, sexual romantic attraction to other women at times, but that's not, I don't need sex to live. It doesn't actually have to impact who I am because, well, God has said that we as humans can thrive outside of sexual and romantic relationships. Jesus was a very fulfilled single man, as was the Apostle Paul. But when it comes to our experience of ourselves as embodied and sexed, to be alienated from that touches a place of our identities that is very deep. And so, as Christians who look to the Bible as our as our source for understanding, we know that the fall can touch places like that. We know that brokenness can be experienced there. And so the experience of gender dysphoria itself, we can and should understand as something that's a result of the fall, but it doesn't mean the person experiencing it uh, is more sinful than anyone else or that their experience of it is a sign of, of them sinning. They're not choosing to experience gender dysphoria. Instead, if, if they're a disciple of Christ, the question Of moral responsibility comes, how how are you going to respond to that experience? We need to have a lot of grace with each other about what that that response looks like. You know, there's so much that goes into our ability uh, to be able to live in the way God's calls us. So if we're going to walk faithfully alongside our brothers and sisters with that experience, we've got to be in it for the long haul and we have to be able to wield both grace and truth. And some of us, you know, it's like a spectrum a little bit some of us really fall on the grace side (laughs) so we're really hesitant to bring in truth we just want to be yes 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 affirming and others of us we're hard on the truth side you know we just want to speak speak the word we've got not a lot of patience if you don't know which one you are you know just ask a good friend and so i think that's why the church really needs each other because sometimes our instincts kind of fall on either side of the spectrum and that's why we need to be talking together how to respond to this because we need each other. We don't we don't have access to the full, um, full best ministry practices just on our own.
1: So I'm, I'm interested in how you spoke about um, the way that sin has touched every part of creation. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that it has affected uh, the way that we relate to ourselves in manifesting even in ways like gender dysphoria. But then you, your language shifted to. Brokenness, which I find really interesting, because I think that's an accurate description. But here's a here's sort of a cultural spin. I want to get your thoughts on. Yeah, so much much advertisement language, so much media language, so much even uh, same-sex sort of agenda-type language, and so on. Even even country music of late is celebrating brokenness in ways that I wonder if it even undermines a Christian response to this. In other words, interesting. um, Yeah. So it's so often that. It's, it's this sort of language of I'm broken and it's almost becomes from there. It's I'm broken. I'm OK with it. You should be OK with it.
3: <laughs> it's yeah, I am um...
1: this, uh, this sort of um, apologetic for regardless of what my issue is, whether it's, you know, whether I'm same sex attracted or whether it's uh, I like potted plants, as you mentioned, or whatever <laughs> the thing is, that's who I am. You need to deal with it. And sh- as Christians, I feel like we should say, look, we should be first to underscore. Yeah, we are. We are broken. But we don't sit in our brokenness and celebrate that. We celebrate the one who heals our brokenness. And we, I think I just want to get your thoughts on this. Should we push yeah. this part of the conversation when talking with uh, people of LGBTQ, etc., cetera, and, and beyond that as well? Is that, a, is that a part of this conversation?
0: Well, and it's so complicated, too, because the idea that who I am is whatever I find deep inside of myself has deep Christian roots. I mean, this is why the work of Charles Taylor is so helpful, because he demonstrates there are a lot of different streams of modernity that are reacting to each other. And Christianity gave birth to a lot of what's good, but that once you lose Christ, it becomes a a really deformed version of what's going on. So the idea of the the individual's responsibility, well that that comes, that goes back to, to your boy, Augustine, right? Like he understands that he introduces it into the stream, but he's always saying, I go inward to go upward. Like I, I go in so I can go up to God. And so we've, what we've, what's happened is we've, we've been cut off from the God part. So there can be something really good about saying we need to all recognize that we're not perfect and they all have brokenness right because otherwise we end up with a weird type of moralism we know that we're not i mean it just experientially we know we're not perfect and that's that's part of the gospel is being able to recognize these different pitfalls like you say but the thing is our culture our society even every one of us i mean we all want god's stuff without god right so we're we're made in his image so we can grasp on to different parts of his truth but we're fallen so we don't know what to do with it. I think our culture is really good at recognizing, you know, that we each have an individual experience. that's a little bit different. And where in the gospel that would say like, well, and God individually redeems us and redeemed into a people it's corporate at the same time. Instead, it's sort of like, well, we need to save ourselves, right? Like the only, the only person who's going to take care of me is me. I have to obey my desires. That's who owns me. Well, that's terrible, right? I mean, we've all drove, driven ourselves into ditches by following what we, yeah. what we desire. God is the one who bought us with a price, but how we wield that in our conversations really depends on the relationship we have with the person talking in front of us. If we are a parent whose 10-year-old daughter tells us, well, I think I, I want to identify as non-binary and we've never seen anything in this girl's life to suggest that she experiences gender dysphoria. We have pretty good reason to not comply with her requests uh, and to actually have a, a pretty frank convert of loving but frank conversation with her, especially if she grew up in a Christian household and identifies as a Christian. Whereas, like my librarian over at the branch over here uh uses they-them pronouns, and we like chat pleasantly as I check out books, but I'm probably not gonna lay into a whole philosophical understanding of where individualism sits <laughs> right. uh, unless unless um, the library and I form a deeper relationship which perhaps we will so uh, there's there's some triage we're doing of not every opportunity needs to be a pitched battle but we do have a responsibility in our spheres of influence to speak both truth and grace as it relates to sex and gender because the world is conv- like the world no longer knows what men and women are. And I'm speaking up near Boston where this is a little more advanced, but the gospel that brings clarity about men and women that God has created us in his image and good. I think we're going to see the gospel become more appealing and more attractive as yeah. the confusion increases yeah. because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities. People are, they're enslaved to this ideology. And some of it comes from, I mean, some people are responding to the ways gender stereotypes have been wielded against them or against actual sexism that's happened in certain places. And so when they see those types of problems, it's natural for them to think, well, maybe, maybe it's the binary itself that's wrong. It's sort of a classic overcorrection because they're responding to real problems that are in the world. And instead well, instead the answer is Christ. And the beautiful thing about God's vision in the Bible is there are a lot of ways to faithfully live as a male or a female in God's image in the world, just like with church. I mean, we're told very little about the church. We need to have elders and we need to sing songs. We need to preach the word. But the way that actually gets worked out throughout the world is how you can have, um, you know, a congregation of very stiff you know white presbyterians in michigan doing church very faithfully uh and you also have very exuberant dancing loud congregations in other places in the world right and and they're both doing church faithfully they just got different cultural forms in the same way it's a lot of space to live faithfully as a man or a woman in the scripture we're called to live distinctly so we're not we're not being called towards androgyny but there's a lot of freedom. The fact that my husband does almost all of our cooking is not a threat to the male female uh, binary in our house. Actually, it's a great gift because I, I, I mean, I, I barely know how to scramble an egg, and he can make really good. He can make really good stuff, right? So we, so sometimes we just need to parse what's cultural from what's biblical, and that can be hard to do. You know, things that are cultural are so ingrained in us, but that's okay. We can we can come to the questions without fear knowing that God has anchored us um, and recognizing that he's going to give us exactly what we need to live faithfully and to speak faithfully.
1: All right. Speak to pastors and parents for just a second. So okay. I'm, I'm a pastor and also have four kids and I need your help on my kids are in public school. I'm a pastor with uh, a number of public school educators, as well as right. people growing up college students and everything in between um, what are just some general encouragements and even just, just recommendations for how to consider and live into this conversation culturally, but faithfully as a Christian.
0: Yeah. And this is something that's on my mind and so much too, because I have a second grader in the public school and her kindergarten teacher was a woman who was married to another woman. So I didn't get a long on-ramp to consider these types of questions. Yeah. Recently, I've been thinking how, as I, as I consider my daughter and her friends, I think we need to do a lot more work in the book of Daniel. We, we need to really,
3: yeah.
0: we need to really marinate in the fact that these men were stolen off to live in a land of idolatry. And they served the Lord with excellence and they would not bow to the idols. And they were recognized as excellent but they were recognized as non idolaters They worshiped the Lord. So I think one of the things I've been trying to think about is how do we talk to our children about the fact that being a Christian makes us different in this culture? I think one of the things that hasn't been true um, for a lot of Americans is that Christianity counted against you a long time, Christianity was in the plus category. It gave you social clout, or it was at least neutral. We are rapidly moving to a place where Christianity itself is viewed as morally troubling. Like it is morally repugnant to worship the Lord because of the idols of our culture. And LGBT issues is one of the places where the idols of our culture shows up most profoundly. You can tell what the idol is if someone wants to kill you because you won't worship it. This is really difficult. Uh, I actually want to stop just right here for a moment in the answer and even just say one of the difficult layers of this conversation is there is an activist element and a movement element of the LGBT movement that is really powerful, but there's also a personal element. I don't know if you've ever, um, if you've ever been driving at a certain type of morning or a certain type of night where the sun is going right into your eyes through the windshield. Like you come up over a hill and you're like, Oh my God, I can't see the road anymore. You're like looking for the line because you can't see anything. Cause the sun is right in your eyes. And you're like, I'm going to hit somebody. I think what happens sometimes with the activism el- element of LGBT is it's like the sun that's coming in our truck windshield. And we can't see the teenager in our church that we're about to run over. Yeah. The teenager in our church is not a part usually, of this political activist arm of the LGBT movement. They're just desperately trying to figure out how how they're going to tell anyone, how they're going to live faithfully. They're scared to death, usually. And, and in a lot of cases, they're going to the internet, and sometimes they're turning to self-harm, right? So we need to have both lenses on. Whenever we're talking about the activism wing, we're not forgetting about the actual people that we're called to care for and when we're talking about the people we're not forgetting about the other one that's really tricky to do i think that's one of the hardest parts of this conversation but as we consider the public school we've got to recognize that certain public schools are like going all in on the idols and that's going to mean teaching our children how to recognize idolatry and the fact that when we do not bow to our culture's idols they should expect to be persecuted I've been having this conversation with my daughter, especially as she sees her 12-year-old friend who wouldn't participate in her middle school's LGBT day of silence and received major blowback. People were calling her homophobic. I mean, she's actually, she's just 11. She'll be 12 next month, right? This is coming hard and fast for her. Identifying a Christian is costing her publicly. And some of us raising our children have never actually had to deal with that. So we don't know how to do it with our kids we need to read the new Testament again. Jesus tells us this is the normal experience. We're now catching up to the normal experience of Christians. So how do we prepare our children for that? I think in some cases it will mean not putting our children in public schools. If things are just too wild or if you, you kind of got to know your kids, you know, but in some cases, I think it means being faithfully in the public school participating as far as you can. This is really hard. And we tend to judge each other based on our school decisions. Um, so that gets really hard too. Instead, we need to be gracious and I think explore the faithfulness of a lot of opportunities, and especially as pastors. You know, the, the local church is the place where the kingdom should be most evident, right? So we should be very, the clearest spot of preaching the gospel because the gospel is the salvation for everyone who would believe. And everybody needs to hear the gospel. And I think when the gospel is preached and Tender, truthful care is extended to people who identify as transgender or people who experience gender dysphoria. It adds plausibility um, to the gospel that we preach. I was just reading about the missional theology of Leslie Newbigin for a seminar I'm taking. He was talking about this. The cross the cross is saying a violent no to the idolatry of the world. But Jesus's identification with us in the resurrection is saying a, a deep and powerful yes to the creational intent and that um, our words, thats the way Newbegin put it, it's like our, our words should be explaining these acts that need explanation, right? And so if we're caring for LGBT people, the church expects us to be throwing our Bibles at them and shouting nasty things about them. If, we, if we're actually seeing disciples who experience same-sex attraction, experience gender disorder, if we see them thriving in Jesus, when the culture doesn't expect them to. And that calls forth an explanation of the gospel. Like, how is this possible? And it's like, well, because Jesus actually is that good.
1: That's so good. Rachel, we can't let you go without first uh, telling us a little more about your book, Born Again This Way. Uh, Just give us the the snapshot of it enough that everyone (laughs) will want to run out and buy it and then buy more for their friends and family for Christmas presents. So tell us about it.
0: Well, it came out in March, 2020, just like the pandemic. So perfect timing. Uh, it was, my...
1: <laughs> no one was doing anything else. Like, it's yeah, a...
0: you know, you might as well read a book. Yeah. I, um, it was my attempt to write about, to write a practical theology for same sex attracted believers and those who love them. You know, there was plenty of memoirs like, Oh, here's just a story of someone who experiences this and is a Christian. And, and there were treatments of like, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, which is very good, but, but practical theology is a, a need. If you're, if you're a Christian who wants to understand about prayer, you might read a a memoir about prayer, like George Mueller, you might read like a theological explanation of what prayer is. But typically, we also turn to practical theology, like what does it look like to develop the spiritual rhythms of prayer and and these types of things? Well, similarly, we just don't have a lot of practical theology for same-sex attracted disciples. Like what does, how should I think about how to identify? What do I do with desires if they do go away or if they don't go away or how should I think about singleness and marriage so it was my attempt to speak into that space I hope we'll get more books like it honestly one of the, some of the funnest emails I've gotten are from like older self-identified old straight white guys who were like wow this book really helped me understand my own relationship to desire I wasn't expecting that that's interesting And I think it's really interesting honest, yeah I was like well that wasn't what I was trying to do, but I'm glad, I'm glad to hear it because it really is just a, a reflection yeah. on faithfulness in the face of temptation. And we all deal with that.
1: Is your book, is in terms of its audience, could we give it to teenagers? Is it more. Popular? Oh,
0: definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't give it to an eight year old, but you could give it to a teen for sure.
1: Yeah, fantastic.
2: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, do us a tremendous favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, brief review. It's a small, small step. It'll take 30 seconds, but it'll go a long ways to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. And that's a wrap on season two of the Christ and Culture podcast. Thank you all so, so much for listening. And we're going to take a few months off, but we will be back in the fall with more Christ and culture conversations to help connect faith with every aspect of your life. Enjoy your summer, and we'll see you in the fall.